Good afternoon, everyone. The question is, the, the Bible t tells us that there are tares in the church of God and that Satan planted them. God told the reapers to leave them to grow with the wheat in case the wheat should be pulled up with the tares. Does that mean if one is clearly seen as a tear and is causing trouble in the church that he or she should not be disfellowshipped? So let's go over to Matthew 13 where we read about the tares. And in Matthew 13, verse 24, we find in this chapter a series of parables which are stories that are made to illustrate a point by analogy. And another parable he put forth to them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles, to burn them, that get, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, Jesus often uh, uttered these parables to multitudes of people. He didn't always explain to them what the parables meant, though, and that's why sometimes he was asked in a different place why he used parables, and, and he said, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, and they, they don't understand. In some respects, the meaning, the full meaning of the parables were not explained quite often to the crowds that Jesus was speaking to. Now, sometimes he spoke to them quite plainly, but, but often he spoke in parables. But then he would explain in more detail the actual meaning of the parables to his disciples. So in verse 36, Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parables of the tares of the field. And he answered and said to them, So here is his explanation of this parable. He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, he explains here that the good seed is sown by him, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, and the seed would be the Word of God, the, the Gospel, that is communicated to the world. The parable that just immediately preceded this particular parable had to do with 
a sower and seed. And in verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, he explains in verse 23, he, he received on good ground as he who hears the word and understands it. The seed that's sown is the word of God, the gospel message. What he's saying here is that when that seed is sown, it does produce a plant, as by analogy, which will it would be expected eventually to mature and bear fruit. Now, the message of the gospel goes out to the world, to the entire world. Now, you might ask, what is a tear? Barnes notes, which is a commentary on the New Testament, says of tares, it probably meant a degenerate kind of wheat or the darnel grass growing in Palestine. In its growth and form, it has a strong resemblance to genuine wheat, but it either produces no grain or that of a very inferior and hurtful kind. It was extremely difficult to separate it from the genuine wheat on account of its similarity while growing. Thus it aptly represents hypocrites in the church strongly resembling Christians in their experience and in some respects their lives. It's impossible to distinguish them from genuine Christians, nor can they be separated until it's done by the great searcher of hearts at the day of judgment. An enemy, the devil, has done it, and nowhere has he shown profounder cunning or done more to adulterate the purity of the gospel. Now the tares here then are by way of analogy, they're people who are attracted to the gospel and at least, in a sense, become part of the church in, in most cases. It's easy to distinguish between God's people and those who are making no effort to keep the Sabbath or the holy days or keep God's laws and so forth. That's not difficult that would not be difficult for the angels to discern at all. In this analogy, he's talking about, as tares, people who look like Christians, people who resemble Christians, people who, who seem to appear to be Christians, at least to the casual viewer. Clark's commentary says the word zizania, which is here translated tares, in which should rather be translated bastard or degenerate wheat is a Chaldee word or an Aramaic word and its meaning must be sought in the rabbinical writers who wrote in Aramaic. In a treatise in the Mishnah called Kelayim which treats expressly in different kinds of seeds the word zenum, uh, zenum or zanin is used for bastard or degenerated wheat. And what it, So what he's saying is that this is an inferior kind of wheat that looks in its development stage, as it's growing in the field, it looks virtually identical to good wheat, and the difference cannot be distinguished until the harvest, because the way it's different is it either produces no fruit or a very inferior kind of fruit, and also usually a much less quantity of fruit. So what Jesus is doing is he's talking about the gospel being sown in the world, and then as the gospel is sown, it begins to produce fruit. And there are, in this particular parable, 
there are two different classes of fruit. One is real fruit, real wheat, so to speak, and the people that respond to the gospel are, are compared to wheat plants, but the other are plants that look virtually identical to wheat, but wind up not producing anything worthwhile. So, the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary says, in regard to verse 29, where he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Now, this, is, this shows how difficult it is to tell the one from the other. Jesus said, Leave the plants alone, because they're so difficult to tell apart that if you go in and try to uproot these tares, you're going to pull out some of the good wheat as well. So he's saying, don't do anything until the harvest time. And the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary says, it will be done in due time, but not now, nor is it your business. Lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Nothing could more clearly or forcibly teach the difficulty of distinguishing the two classes and the high probability that in the attempt to do so these will be confounded. Now there are a number of statements in the scripture which illustrate this idea that Jesus is expressing in various ways. Over in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15 we see another analogy here and it expresses some of the same idea only in somewhat different terms. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Now we were reading about plants, some of which are good plants and some of which are not good plants, that look very similar, if not identical. Here we're reading about prophets who look like sheep, sheep being one of the metaphors for God's people but they are false prophets. False prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits, exactly the same way that the tares would be known eventually by the fruits that they produce. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Ultimately, the way you tell the difference between the good and the bad is by the fruit that is born. And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Now, in the case of a prophet, you do have a way of judging the fruit because prophet implies someone that's teaching and you can look at what they teach and you can, over time, you can make a determination as to whether what they are teaching is consistent with God's word or not. And and then you can make a, a determination about the kind of fruit they're bearing. That's not always the case, though, with just general brethren in the church. The fruit that they are bearing may not necessarily be obvious one way or another. And quite often, as a matter of fact, people that are, in biblical terms, wicked, appear to be righteous. Notice over in Luke chapter 6, 
Luke chapter 6 and verse 37. Notice what Jesus said here. One of the lessons that we can learn from this parable is that we need to be very careful about making judgments, especially about other brethren in the church. It says, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. If you use harsh judgments in judging others in the church and you condemn them when God hasn't condemned them, then you're putting yourself at risk of being judged by the same standards that you are using in judging others and condemning them. And one of the reasons that we need to be very careful about this is because we often don't have enough evidence, enough facts, enough information to make judgments that are worth anything. We may see certain things on the surface. We may even see some sins that somebody commits, but we, we may not see their repentance. We may not see other factors that would make a, an impact on how that person ought to be judged. Plus, all of us are still a work in progress. None of us is perfect yet. We all commit sins. We all have weaknesses. And so we need to realize that even though someone may have an issue or a problem, they may be striving to overcome that and they may in fact end up overcoming it eventually. So we need to be careful. That doesn't mean we never make a judgment necessarily. It just means we need to exercise extreme caution in judging. He spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? And will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. That is what we are supposed to be striving for as Christians is to become exactly like Jesus Christ. But we're not all there yet, and we are in different stages of development. Some have developed more than others. Some have developed less. Some may not be developing at all. But we don't necessarily have enough evidence to make a judgment about this or that or some other given individual. So we need to be really careful and it says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Quite often people who are judgmental, who want to, to take a critical look at others, may have serious problems in their own lives that they do not even perceive. And they may be going around condemning other people and completely oblivious and blind to their own sins and issues in their own lives. And that's what he's saying. The sins in the life of somebody that you're condemning may be trivial relative to your own sins. And a perfect example of this is the Pharisees who were very self-righteous and delighted in condemning others and did in fact very expressly condemn most everybody not of their group. And yet, they had uh, huge sins 
that were enough to condemn them to the lake of fire if they did not repent. Sins such as perverting and twisting God's word and misapplying it and putting their own laws and rules above God's word, in effect negating God's word, putting more value on their traditions than on the, on the law of God. They saw themselves as righteous and other people as evil, but in quite often their sins outweighed the sins of others that they were condemning. That's not to say the other people's sins were were something to be praised. They weren't, but the point is, here were people judging the sins of others who had huge problems of their own they needed to work on. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. So, part of the lesson here is we need to take care of our own house cleaning first. We need to take a close look at ourselves because the only person sins that you or I can really do anything about when it comes right down to it, in most cases, is our own. We can't clean up somebody else's life for them. We can only with God's help, try to clean up our own lives. And so we need to focus on that and not focus so much on what we think other people are doing wrong, the sins other people are committing. That doesn't mean necessarily that you're totally oblivious to the sins of others. We'll get to that a little bit more in a, in a minute. But you need to be very cautious and careful about judging and condemning others. 1 Corinthians 4, you know, it's interesting about Paul's ministry. There were all kinds of people in the church back then who thought they knew how to do Paul's job better than Paul did. And they were more than ready to tell others uh, about all the mistakes they thought Paul was making and how they thought they could do it better and and so forth. And he had to put it, that was one of the things that he had to put up with, uh, I guess, to one degree or another, it's probably something that every minister has to put up with. But notice what he said here in reference to his judges in the church. He said, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Notice he said of himself and other ministers, he said, first of all, that they are servants of Christ and that they were stewards of the mysteries of God, the truth. They have had entrusted to their care the truth. And it says, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now, a steward is like a caretaker of someone else's property. It could be money or it could be something else. But let's say it's money. A person is a steward over someone's money. And when it's time to give an accounting for what's been done with the money, he has to have been found to be faithful in how he handled that money. If he stole some of it, if he mishandled it, then he's going to be held accountable and punished. And that's what he's saying. It's the same with ministers who are entrusted with God's word. We're, we're accountable for what we do with it. But he goes on to say, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. 
In fact, I do not even judge myself. Now, we're told elsewhere we should judge ourselves. He's not contradicting what he himself wrote elsewhere. What he's saying is there are certain ways you judge and other ways that you don't judge. In some things, you make judgments. In other things, you reserve judgment. You judge those things that you're responsible for judging. Like your own sins, for example. You need to examine yourself, look at your own sins, judge yourself in light of God's word, and make amends where you're falling short. That's something you should judge. When it comes to judging other people, your responsibilities in that regard are very limited, you see. You do have to judge ministers in certain respects. Mainly, you have to judge if they're telling the truth or not. And if they're not telling you the truth, then you don't need to pay heed to those things in which they are not in accord with God's word. And if they're just flat out lying about everything, then you shouldn't even be listening to them to begin with. But there are lots of other areas where you have no obligation, no right, no responsibility to judge them at all. Because they're not responsible to you, they're responsible to God. Or somebody else, maybe between them and God, but, it's, but certainly to Jesus Christ. And so it was with Paul. See, Paul was appointed by Jesus Christ to do his job, and he was doing it faithfully, but he was being judged by others. And he was being judged in ways that were very deceptive and yet uh, in some ways very convincing to people, or at least some people. For example, uh, he writes elsewhere that one of the things that they were judging him for in Corinth was the fact that he didn't take their money. But one of the charges was, well, if he were a real apostle, he would be taking their money because uh, apostles have the right to to partake of the tithes. Now, that doesn't mean he never lived off of tithes because he did. He took tithes from, from other places, and but he did not take money from specific groups, especially new areas where he was going to pioneer the preaching of the gospel for specific reasons. But he was criticized for that very thing. Now, what if he had gone in there and taken their money? What would they have said then? See, in other words, he was in a catch-22, no-win situation. If he had taken their money, he would have been accused of being in it for the money. If he didn't take their money, they would have said, well, he's not a real apostle, or he'd be taking their, their money. Those were the kinds of accusations that people were making about Paul. Or they were saying, his letters are really powerful, but in personal appearance, he's weak. Now, I don't know what he looked like, and maybe he had a high-pitched voice. There was something about his personal presence that was not as impressive or imposing as his letters were powerful. They criticized him about that. Notice the, the things they weren't criticizing, they, they weren't talking about, they weren't talking about his message was a lie, you see. Because he could easily counter those kinds of, that approach, let's say, and he did often in his letters, straighten out heresies that other people were promoting. But this is the kind of thing that they were charging him with. He says in verse 4, I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Now that's something we need to remember, that 
whether we judge somebody else or not, ultimately their judge is God. And so quite often, we can just relieve ourselves of the responsibility to judge other people because the real judge is God. He's, he's the one that they're accountable to, not necessarily you or me, with certain exceptions and limitations, which I'll get to later. Therefore, he says, judge nothing before the time. See, there's a time to make a judgment and there's a time not to. In the situation involving the tares, Jesus said, it's not time to make that judgment yet. Wait. One of the most difficult things for people to learn in terms of judgment is timing. There's a time to judge, there's a time to reserve judgment. And quite often what people want to do is they want to make judgments before the time. And they're unwilling to be patient and wait and reserve judgment until it's time and until there's sufficient evidence to make a right judgment. It says, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. And then each one's praise will come from God. And see, this is fully applicable to the situation with the tares because the time for judging is not yet. All of the hidden things are not yet known about every single one of us. And the day will come, though, when all of those things will be revealed, the secret things as well as the things that are open, and then, then everyone's going to know who's real and who's not in terms of being a Christian. In Matthew 23, Jesus pointed out that like wolves in sheep's clothing sometimes appear to many to be righteous, hypocrites often appear to others to be righteous. In fact, most people today, when, when you talk about the Pharisees in terms of the New Testament, they think many people assume the Pharisees' problem was they were just too strict about God's law and they were so careful to obey God's law, they just overdid it. They were overzealous for obeying God. Well, you can't be overzealous for obeying God. That wasn't their problem. Their problem was that they were sinners and they were hypocrites and they were lawless while pretending to be zealous for the law. And in Matthew 23 and verse 26, Jesus said, Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. See, to men, these people appeared righteous. To Christ, who is able to judge the heart, they appeared unclean and lawless. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So, in terms of, let's say, put this in terms of people in the church, and these were in the church, actually, the, the Old Testament church. They were, the, in a sense, the leaders, the representatives of the church of the Old Covenant at that time. And they appeared 
okay on the outside, but inside they were corrupt. And we can be the same way. We can fool people. We can put on a pretense of righteousness while we are corrupt inside and full of sin. And that's what the parable of the tares and the good wheat is about. Because some appear to be righteous, but they are corrupt. And others keep the Sabbath, they, they keep the holidays, they show up for church, they do this, they do that. Maybe they're even leaders in the church. Maybe they have a high office in some cases in the church. But they're corrupt spiritually. One of the good things about this is that you get to decide whether you're a tear or a wheat. You see. Because each one of us is a free moral agent. Each one of us has the capacity to repent if we will. And it's not Satan. It's not angelic beings. It's not even God who determines if we're going to be a wheat or a tear. It's us. We decide based on the choices that we make. And that's why we need to look at this parable and take it seriously because we could turn out to be either a tear or a wheat. Now, I heard about one woman who was all upset some years ago because she was uh, convinced that she was a tear. And the idea was that she had no control over that. Well, you do have control over it because you have control over whether you repent or don't. And if you refuse to repent, you're going to be a tear because you won't bear fruit except corrupt fruit. If you do repent, then you're going to bear good fruit and you're going to be in God's kingdom. So I hope nobody will get hung up going home and saying, I'm a tear, I'm a tear. If you think you're a tear, repent. Then you won't be a tear anymore. Second Corinthians 11 and verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. See, this is one way that you may become a tear, is by allowing Satan to corrupt you spiritually. And there have been people that were once sincere, diligent, faithful Christians who began to slip and began to allow Satan to corrupt them and became corrupt. You can remain faithful or you can choose not to remain faithful. And if you are not diligent in pursuing God and God's way of life, you can and will become corrupted by Satan. If he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you've not received, or a different gospel which you've not accepted, you may well put up with it. He's talking about people in the church who were teachers who were coming along spreading very subtly lies, deception, and deceit, and were, were really agents of Satan. And in verse 12, he said, what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. In other words, to be people who are claiming to be apostles or teachers of Christ, 
Such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to the works. Terrors is not limited to just members of the congregation. It includes ministers who come along in the church. This is talking about ministers who were in the church who were appeared to be God's ministers and yet were ministers of Satan. It also applies to any minister who claims to represent Christ who is teaching falsehoods and lies in the name of Christ. And sometimes it's very difficult to tell the difference at a particular point in time. And again, in, in terms of ministers, the, the way to tell is, is you look at their teachings. You can also sometimes look at their example, but you may not know everything that's going on in their personal lives until later on. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 26, he mentions here that he was in various kinds of peril. And in the last part of this verse, he says, in perils among false brethren. So see, Paul recognized that in the church there were ministers who were corrupt and false. He also recognized that there were within the church brethren who were false. Now you might say, well, why didn't they weed out these brethren that were false and get rid of them? Because if you do that, you're probably going to kick out some people who aren't false, who are just having problems, difficulties, and who eventually might overcome and might wind up in God's kingdom if you don't read them out ahead of time, you see. So you can't just go through the through the church ripping out everybody who doesn't appear perfect. None of us would be left in the first place. But So what that means is that you put up with imperfection. You tolerate a certain amount of imperfection because we're all imperfect. God is, look at what he's had to tolerate. Now, in 1 Timothy 4, we read about as the end approaches, situations that would develop, and it says, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. But quite often when people depart from the faith, they don't do it all at once or overnight. It may be a, a long, drawn-out process that develops in stages where you don't even, you don't know, and I don't know, and they don't know what their spiritual condition is. Because they appear to be doing everything exactly the same way everybody else in the church is doing things. Going to services, going to the holy days, doing this, doing that, whatever. And yet they are being drawn away by Satan, departing from the faith giving heed to seducing or deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, and so forth. Coming up with weird ideas, 
heretical ideas that are unscriptural and unsound. And those things are not always readily evident that some have departed from the faith. And again, it's very difficult to tell because we all have imperfections. And, uh, you know, who's to say your imperfection is any better or any worse than mine? What's going to count is the fruit that is born when all is said and done. By this, I don't want you to think that we take sin lightly. None of us should take our own sins or anybody else's lightly. But on the other hand, we shouldn't go around condemning and judging each other and hoping that so-and-so will be kicked out of the church because, because of whatever. I'll get to this matter of being put out of the church directly. But we need to be real careful about wishing that someone would be put out of the church. That's not the approach we need to take. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 24, it says, Some men's sins are clearly evident. It's easy to see some people's sins. You know, if someone is openly and flagrantly committing adultery and making no, no a secret of it, that's pretty easy to see. But often, especially with folks in the church, it's not so evident what sins we may be committing. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some follow later. Likewise, the good works. See, you don't always know the, the good things that is done going on in somebody's life either. They're doing like uh, Christ said. Christ said, you don't do your alms before men to be praised by others. You do them in secret to the extent that that's possible. It says good works of some are clearly evident and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden in the long run. This is just another way of saying you reserve judgment until the proper time for judgment to be rendered. And Christ said, ultimately, that is at the end of this age. And in the resurrection, God's going to know who needs to be resurrected and who's not in the first resurrection. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 16, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 16, Paul is writing to Timothy here and there. If you read through uh, Paul's epistles, you find that there were all sorts of problems in the apostolic church or the church of the New Testament. There, there was about every kind of problem there that you could think of. And yet it was still God's church. You look through the chapter 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, you see the church had some serious problems. But it was still God's church. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 16 here, he says, shun profane and vain babblings for they will increase to more ungodliness what he's saying there is if people are just babbling nonsense don't be caught up in that and their message will spread like cancer Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some we got a lot of that going around today where every kind of character under the sun that's proclaiming himself uh, a minister of some sort, uh, proclaiming nonsense, you need to be very careful about uh, buying into some of the weird doctrines of some of these people. A lot of them have some very strange and perverse ideas. Notice what Paul goes on to say. He says, nevertheless, the solid foundation 
of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. See, God knows who's his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you're going to be a Christian, repent, is what he's saying. But he says, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Just like in a field, there can be wheat and there can be tares. Some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, see, that tells us we've got control over our own destiny. We can be cleansed and purified and we can, we can be cleansed of dishonor so that we become honorable. So that we can be gold and silver and not wood and clay. If anyone cleanses himself from the latter, that is dishonor and dishonorable things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. But see, in God's house, there's going to be both kind of vessels. Some wood and clay, some gold and silver. And you get to decide which one you're going to be by deciding if you're going to cleanse yourself and repent or not. I could look around and make a checklist and try to judge people and decide, well, this one's a tear and that one's wheat and that one's a tear, and I'd probably be wrong with about at least half of them because the die is not cast yet. It's not time to make that judgment yet. Besides, I'm not qualified. I may know some of your sins, and I may know some of the things you're doing right, but there's a lot that I don't know. In 2 Timothy 3, in verse 1, it says, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. From such people turn away. For of this sort of those who creep into household and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. If you discern that someone is a fake and a hypocrite, you do have the right to separate yourself from such a person. And sometimes, if the church determines for absolute certain that a person is a hypocrite and is committing some egregious sin, either secretly or openly, we have the right to disassociate ourselves from that person. He goes on to say in verse 13, Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So we know that there are going to be problems in the church, and some of the times these problems will boil to the surface. He says, as for you, you continue in things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. You, you can't really control what other people do with their lives. You can only control your life. And that applies even to ministers. You know, I don't really have much control over what you do. The, the only uh, disciplinary tools that I have as a minister is rebuke 
or correction maybe in a sermon or something if I see something going on that needs to be corrected or, or in personal contact I can talk to you about something and hope that you will, will listen to what I've got to say and repent. Other than that, if the need arises, I can suspend or disfellowship someone. That's pretty limited. And that's the way it ought to be because I have enough on my hands controlling my own life without trying to live your life for you. And all of us are in that boat. We can't live somebody else's life for him or her. We're doing well to manage our own affairs. He says, continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from you, whom you've learned them, that from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So again, you see, it's up to you to take heed to God's Word, to grow, to study, to develop spiritually so that you are bearing spiritual fruit. In Second Peter 2, we're warned about false teachers bringing in heresies. There are many warnings like this scattered through the Bible. We need to take these seriously because this is something we do need to judge. We need to make sure that we're not being misled by people who are heretics. And he says in Second Peter 2 and verse 1, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. But again, these things may take time to develop and, and it, it may be a period of years before you see that someone is spiritually corrupt or is bringing in destructive heresies. And it's happened in the church repeatedly that someone would get in a position of influence and subtly begin corrupting the people and leading them into lawlessness. And eventually the whole group is corrupt or nearly all of it. And usually what happens then is there's a split and a few will flake off. Uh, maybe a few, in, in many cases, it's a few faithful people will leave because they can't tolerate the situation any longer. But often that takes years to develop. And meanwhile, all of those people are all, all up together, you see. You don't necessarily know who's corrupt or who's not, who's a terror, who's really wheat. One way to tell is, are they giving you license to break God's laws? Are they teaching for example, that you can love people without really obeying God's law or pitting love and grace and those things against the law. That's one common deception. There are others, but that's one of the most common. There are all sorts of other deceptions as well. Basically, what you have to do, you have to know God's word inside and out. and You have to be able to discern when people's lying to you or when they're not. In Jude, Jude also wrote about people who were false, and he said in verse 4 of Jude, certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. 
ungodly men, that doesn't mean that the individuals were marked, but God knows human nature and he knows what's happened repeatedly and he knows that some will allow themselves to be corrupted. He turned the grace of our God into licentiousness, a license to do evil, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 12, these are spots in your love feasts, in, in your feasts, your festivals, your and your common meals and so forth. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit. See, they're not bearing any fruit. They're there. They appear to be part of the group, but they're bearing no fruit. They're, they're spiritually barren. Twice dead, it means they're spiritually dead. Pulled up by the roots and so forth. Now, the thing is, though, we can't always discern who these people are at a given point in time. And in some senses, it's not our job to do that. Christ will do that at the right time. However, that does not mean that we ought to or will tolerate flagrant serious sins that are being openly committed and are affect, especially if they're affecting other people. It, they don't necessarily have to affect other people, but if it's that kind of sin, it's a, almost automatically going to affect other people in the church, and we'll see why in a minute. But in Matthew 18 and verse 15, Matthew 18 and verse 15, says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If you think somebody's got a problem, especially if he sinned against you, the thing to do, if, it's, uh, if you think it's that serious, then the first thing you should do is go talk to him personally about it. Do it in a humble way. Don't do it in an accusatory or, or a provocative way. But... Approach him respectfully and humbly and address the problem tactfully. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. It doesn't need to go any farther. If if he says, okay, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize, you know, whatever or whatever, or I'll repent or something, then uh, you, you don't have to take it any farther. If he will not hear you, now you don't do this with every little thing that comes up. There are certain things you just overlook, a lot of things you just overlook. But if it's a serious matter that needs to be addressed, this is how you do it. If he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church, that is, take it to the authorities in the church. And if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. What that means, it's like a non-member. Now, we don't go around throwing tomatoes and brickbats at heathens and tax collectors. We're not unkind to them. We're not mean. We don't try to smear their reputation. We just, they're not part of the group. What that means is you put them out of the fellowship of the church. They're no longer part of the congregation. Doesn't mean you have to hate them or condemn them. Leave their judgment up to God, but you put them away. And this is something that is a definite sin that must be dealt with. It usually implies an ongoing sin, not just a one-time incident. 
In Titus chapter 3 and verse 10, we're told very explicitly here how to deal with someone who is causing division in the church. Titus 3 and verse 10. By the way, it doesn't mean somebody who asks questions or even has a legitimate complaint or criticism. We need to be very careful about complaints because a lot of our complaints aren't very legitimate, but sometimes they are. And sometimes people may have legitimate questions or issues to raise, and we need to be willing to listen to people who have some, uh, some contribution to make along those lines but there are other times where people just are contentious, where they're constantly complaining, where they are wanting to argue about all sorts of issues and things which come up. Titus 3 and verse 9, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions. Over the years, I've had people come up with all sorts of strange ideas about doctrine and other things who want to constantly push those ideas. They're heresy and wrong, but often you can't convince them they're wrong no matter how much proof you give them. Strivings about the law for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. You give people a chance to repent. If someone's flagrantly sinning, you you get you you talk to them. You give them an opportunity to repent. In most cases, now there may be some sins that are so egregious and so uh, let's say so beyond the pale that you have to deal with it immediately. Like Paul did, the person who had been over a period of time committing adultery, and he just said, "Put the man out." And fortunately, in that case, the person repented. But normally, you'd talk to somebody, give them a chance to. Repent, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So you don't do this lightly. You don't just uh, do it every time somebody has a little bit different point of view from yours or, or whatever. But where there's a serious problem with division, heresy, open sinning, and things like that, we have an obligation as a minister for the sake of the person and the sake of the church to deal with that and disfellowship the person for two reasons. First of all, because if you just allow sin to fester in the church, I mean, talking about serious, open, flagrant sins, pretty soon the church is going to be filled with that kind of thing, and it won't be the, the church of God any longer. Secondly, you do it for their, their own sake so that they can wake up and maybe repent. Over in 1 Corinthians, we have an example of that. 1 Corinthians the example I alluded to earlier says it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife and you're puffed up and have not rather mourned. They were patting themselves on the back of how tolerant they were of this kind of behavior. You should have mourned, he said. He who has done this deed might be taken away from you for I indeed is absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as it was his prerogative to do as the pastor of that church, as though I were present concerning him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So what he said was disfellowship him. Reject him from your midst. And he says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yes, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company, that is, not to fellowship spiritually, with anyone who's named a brother who is a fornicator or covetous, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or an extortioner. In other words, someone who's committing some serious flagrant sin and will not repent, then we must separate ourselves from that person or separate the person from us as far as our fellowship, not even to eat with such a person, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? See, there is a time where we must make a judgment. But those are going to be clear-cut cases where the sin is very obvious, where there's no question about what the sin is, and it's very plain and clear what the person's attitude and the direction that he's headed is. Then the church has an obligation to make a judgment and put that person out. And we will never do that lightly or frivolously. We will, if, when, if and when it's done, it will be done responsibly. And it will be done as mercifully and compassionately as possible. But there are times when it must be done for the person's well-being as well as for the church's sake. As Paul said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump here in verse 6. If we just tolerate those things in our midst, Pretty soon they'll spread to where the whole church is corrupted. So I hope you can distinguish the difference between that situation and the situation involving people who are in the church who may be corrupt, but the die is not cast yet.